If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. In late 1097, a weary and war-torn band of crusaders arrived at the stalwart walls of Antioch, a key strategic location on the long journey down the Levant. In the shadow of the city's tall towers, the crusaders plotted out their next move. Starving and exhausted, morale was at an all-time low, but stakes were high. Time was of the essence because the Turkish army was on its way. I'm Emily Briffitts, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we'll be travelling back in time to walk in the footsteps of the Crusaders as we trace the story of the First Crusade, taking in their triumphs and failures, witnessing the hardships they faced, and seeing the landscapes they traversed through their eyes. We'll also be taking in the perspective of those who lived in the Holy Land and the regions the armed pilgrims passed through speaking to a range of top historical experts to challenge some of the most popular perceptions about the Crusades. And, to top this all off, we'll be delving into the Chronicles and revealing just why we continue to talk about the Crusades to this day. In this fourth episode, we'll be witnessing the moment the Crusaders face their biggest trial yet, the long and gruelling Siege of Antioch in 1097 to 1098. Considering the top crusader tactics and revealing how the crusader army found the motivation to carry on in this unfamiliar and imposing land. We'll be unpicking the biggest questions surrounding this stage of the campaign later. But before we do, let's jump back in time to the 11th century to survey the scene with our historical travelling companion, Jonathan Phillips. Professor of Crusading History at Royal Holloway, University of London. The Siege of Antioch lasts from October 1097 to June 1098. It was the longest siege of the First Crusade, and in many ways its greatest and hardest test. Obviously, Jerusalem was the ultimate aim and the spiritual jackpot, but the centre of gravity of the expedition really was Antioch. It's located, in present-day terms, on the Turkish-Syrian border. It's Antakya one of the greatest cities of the Roman world, probably the third biggest behind Rome and Alexandria. Great for trade, great for political power, an enormous city, maybe half a million strong living in it in those times. In the medieval times, it would be more familiar as an early Christian city, the city of St. Peter, the city of Paul as well. And it had been Greek controlled as recently as 1084. And the recovery was certainly part of Alexios's aim as he sort of sponsored the Crusades and engaged with them. As the Crusaders arrived outside Antioch, 
in October 1097, they saw a hugely imposing sight. They saw the citadel perched on top of Mount Silpius, over 500 meters high. They saw the walls of Justinian, built in the 6th century, cascading down the mountainside to embrace a really impressive large city. Multiple great gates, 12 kilometers of walls, the river Orontes. There were fields there which the inhabitants could probably get food from during the course of the siege. It was impossible for the Crusaders to surround this place. They had to dig in and they built three of their own fortresses in the course of the siege. As they were there, it became a scene of rivalries and tensions within the Crusaders' forces. Relations with the Greeks would become stretched and stretched, actually to breaking point. It was a great test of morale and motivation, a test that some of them are going to end up failing. It's a scene of desertions. Some of the Crusaders would not be able to survive the test that they're put through at Antioch. It was the scene of miraculous discoveries, the scene of visions, and an intensification of the Crusaders' faith. It was also a place where the Crusaders encounter very, very stern resistance. The divisions within the Muslim world immediately apparent when they reach Antioch. The ruler of the city, the man who the Crusaders had to fight, was a man called Yagi Sihan. He's allied with Ridwan of Aleppo, and they look to Kerboga of Mosul for support. And playing out and dealing with that mosaic of alliances within the Muslim Near East is part of something that really is to the advantage of the Crusaders. We've also got to think of the situation of those inside the city, looking out to the Crusader armies, these Western forces massing outside their walls. How did they feel? Well, they obviously had to put their faith in the great walls, in the edifice of the city that they were inside, and hope that Kerboga of Mosul comes to their rescue. What trials did the crusading force face in the siege? Food really is the key problem for the crusaders in the course of this siege. They're there for so long, they're there through the winter, and while it's easy to get food first of all, they have to go wider and wider in their foraging. And as a crusader, the further you get away from your camp, the more vulnerable you are. And for the Muslims, it was a chance, a much easier chance to pick off the crusaders. In the course of the siege, there's lots of battles and skirmishes as these foraging expeditions have to go further and further afield. Inside the crusader camp in 1098, as time moves on, the pressure mounts, discussions taking place as to, you know, how can we break the siege? What help can we hope for from outside? Is Alexios going to send help? Are there going to be reinforcements arriving? The really unwelcome news for the Crusaders is coming in April, May 1098, with the news that Kerboga of Mosul is heading towards Antioch with a relief army. This means something has got to change very, very quickly. For some, Stephen Blois, the pressure is too much. And the idea that Kerboga is going to come along terrifies him and he leaves. This is one of the senior figures on the crusade. He just slides away from the camp and starts heading back across Asia Minor. The bulk of the army stays and Beaumont of Taranto comes up with a very, very smart idea. I think he probably had this in mind for a little while and he has made contact with some of the Eastern Christians inside the city, a man called Firuz, an Armenian, and he does a deal with Firuz who will in the course of one night, let a rope down the wall. And so the Crusaders can use this to scramble in, almost in a sort of secret ops mission, get inside a tower, get on top of the wall. This was the vital bridgehead. 
The following morning, the Western armies poured into the city, assaulting the citizens, killing, grabbing treasure, and desperately needed food. The Crusaders had got the city of Antioch. Still, as they looked up though, the citadel was looming on Mount Silpius above them. That remained in Muslim hands. So, the Crusaders need to settle down and to work out how to get into that, all the time knowing that Kerboga of Mosul is approaching them. So the pressure, in some ways, is not off at all. They have to actually crack the citadel before Kerboga arrives. And in this heightened atmosphere of religiosity, miracles and visions start multiplying. Probably the most important one involves a man called Peter Bartholomew, who has a vision and he's told to dig in the church of St. Peter. And there he finds, after many hours digging, a piece of rusty metal. And that is believed to be the Holy Lance, a miracle. God has shown them this object from his crucifixion, the lance that pierced Christ's side. There's cries of delight as they discover this object. And this is something that inspires the masses in the Crusader army who struggled for all those years to get to Antioch and are desperate to get on to Jerusalem. This is a sign that has given them renewed hope. And so fortified by this, the Crusaders gather their forces and take Kaboga on in battle. The Crusader army at this point is it's a rabble. They've got hardly any horses. They're exhausted. Their fine weapons and splendor that they left Western Europe in is in rags. But they have a cohesion and a desperation, and that drives them to victory. They take on Kaboga and they defeat him in battle. The day after that, the citadel surrenders. Antioch is theirs. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, let's take a deep dive into this trying episode of The First Crusade. The Crusaders had seen out a siege at Nicaea back in the summer of 1097. And, as Jonathan has just made clear, they soon faced another two as Antioch. Once as the aggressors on the outside, and once from a very perilous position inside the city walls. You might remember in our last episode, Dr Steve Tibble, expert in crusading warfare, explained the delicate dance performed between the Crusaders and Seljuk Turks as their different military strategies made them wary of going head-to-head in battle. I asked him how this shaped the nature of conflict in the First Crusade. There were a lot of sieges on the First Crusade, and in a way that's sort of surprising, because one might imagine that armies just wandering around fighting each other. But in reality, warfare in battle is risky and dangerous, and particularly because the two different armies came from such different backgrounds, often rather than meeting on a field of battle, each side would find strategic strong points and they would besiege them. And that's kind of lower risk. Say, for instance, you might you might set out to besiege a, a city, you put your army around it, you send your foragers out to get food, and you estimate maybe you've got three or four months to break in. If you don't do that in three months, well, it's not great, but you haven't lost your army, everybody's not dead, and you move on to the next one. I think the other main issue about sieges in the Crusades is that you have to remember that the Middle East and Asia Minor had been part of the Roman Empire and it's part of the Byzantine Empire. So it was much more urbanized than many other parts of the world. They were bigger cities with bigger populations and they were more strategically valuable. Not only did a siege offer up a lower risk option, there was also potential for a larger reward. Conducting a siege sounds as though it's a very straightforward thing, but in reality, they were always very complicated and there were very many different ways one could go about doing it. At one level, one could just try to blockade a city. So you would basically try and starve them into submission. And Again, that's, that's something that's so basic, it's often overlooked. Lack of food will kill an army and it'll kill a city in a, in a matter of a couple of weeks. It's obvious, but it's, it's very fundamental. The other problem the Crusaders had with starving cities into submission was that these were big cities and there were never quite enough Crusaders to really do a tight blockade. It's very rare that a Crusader army can besiege a city and then stop everybody going in and out. So for instance, even in the siege of Antioch, where the Crusaders um, were there for months, at no point were they able to stop supplies going in and out. They were able to hinder them, but people could always move out and around. So once you've realized that you can't starve them into submission, you then have to go to less subtle and more violent ways. And at its most simple, you can do an assault. And this is basically chancing your arm, seeing if you can throw men at the walls, hopefully they'll have small ladders and they may be able to break down a door with a, a, 
ram or whatever and and just push their way through they may be able to break in that way probably not but it's something you try because it if it worked it would be wonderful when that fails as it usually did you go at it the slow hard way which is you build siege engines um, you build catapults you build siege towers with siege engines these would often be coverings or mantlets you'd be able to push to the wall and then while you have a covering there miners and sappers would get to the bottom of the wall and start chipping away and taking it out it, it is literally you know mining their way under the walls and at a certain point you would you would prop the walls up with wooden wooden props and at a certain point when you'd felt you'd gone far enough you would burn those props and hopefully the walls would come down with catapults that's kind of more that's kind of obvious what they do. They basically throw stones. Interestingly, what they would probably aim at, uh, rather than the walls themselves, they would mainly aim at the battlements, so the top of the wall where there are the projections that soldiers hide behind. And they would they would try and make that whole walkway as dangerous as possible, because that's that's the area where an attacking army would have problems. And then, very impressively, when it worked you had these siege towers. And this is basically creating a platform that's bigger than the wall. So you, you create a multi-story platform, sometimes four stories high, and you gradually push it towards the wall. And on each story, you might have small catapults, um, you'd have archers firing. And, and critically, as you got to the wall, you would be looking down. So you'd have a height advantage over the defenders. The defenders would be on the battlements and your catapults would hopefully be making their life difficult. Your archers on the ground would make their life difficult. And then the troops on top of the siege tower would also be shooting as well. You'd have crossbowmen, say, and they would try and sweep the battlements clear. And at that point, when your tower gets to the wall, you can put tree trunks or planks of wood and you know, brave men can work maybe run across those planks of wood from the top of the siege tower under fire onto the top of the battlements. And that's the critical point. Almost always, once you're able to get men onto the top of an enemy wall, it's game over. Your men can pour in and, and the city is taken. Their time surrounding Antioch proved an incredibly hard and testing time for the Crusaders. They experienced famine, hardship and military setbacks. And it was at this challenging time, according to one of our contemporary crusading sources, Fulcher of Chartres, that the women were sent away from the camp. Whether this was to ration what little resources they had, or to avoid fear of sexual sin leading to God's disfavour, we don't quite know. But what we do know is that at least one of the leaders had a plan, and his name might be familiar to you. Beaumont of Taranto. When the army arrived at Antioch, it must have been hugely intimidating. Antioch was a huge city. A Muslim traveller going through just a few years before the First Crusade got there described it as having 360 towers on the wall circuit. So it was an enormous wall circuit. I think he was probably exaggerating a little bit, but you get the idea. This was a place that you besieged at your peril. So when the Crusaders got there, it was a, a slightly macabreish moment for them. They decided they couldn't attack it. They couldn't take it by assault because that was clearly crazy. It was far too strong for that. 
And they just hung around. They were there for nine months. And it was towards the end, it was kind of waiting for something to happen. You know, they, they got there on the assumption that something good might happen. And bizarrely, they were quite right. Something from their perspective, good did happen. And in fact, um, one of the crusader leaders uh, called Bohemond struck up a, a, a transactional relationship with one of the, uh, the, the local military a uh, guy who was in charge of a couple of the towers, uh, a man called Farouz, who uh, eventually offered to make a deal and to let the Crusaders in. Th- and this sounds strange, but in, in fact, it's not as strange as you might think. The The city of Antioch had only been uh, taken over by the Turks in 1086. So it was, uh, it was only in Turkic hands for 11 years. Their population was still Christian. Even when the Turks had taken it over, it was only taken by treachery. So treachery is, a, is an important ingredient in the toolbox of how you capture cities. And in, in Antioch, that's the way it played out. Bohemond was very devious, well, like they all were, I guess, but Bohemond in particular. And he made sure that he talked to all his comrades, all the leadership, and made sure that the rewards for taking the city, the rewards for getting a, an entrance were firmly established before he told them anything about um, you know, the fact that he already had a, a way of getting in there. So he was very clear that he wanted his his huge cut before he let anybody else know anything. So let's get this straight. Bohemond had struck up a sneaky deal with someone inside Antioch. But before he revealed this to the rest of the army, he had proposed that the first leader to capture the city should be put in charge. And if he could pull off his secret plan... This would, of course, be Bohemond himself. Unfortunately, we don't know exactly what motivated Farouz, the Armenian who let Bohemond and his forces in. But that being said, there were clearly already tensions within the city of Antioch before the Crusaders arrived. Having such a large Christian population in the city naturally made it difficult for the uh, Turkish garrison to keep an eye on everybody. And it also made it easier for the Crusaders to eventually get the crack in, in Antioch's defences that they needed. And it was interesting, once, once they started to pour into the city, the Crusaders obviously you know, were fighting with the Turks, but the, the leader of the, of the Turkish garrison and his bodyguard weren't killed by the Crusaders. They were actually killed by the local Christians. So there were so many local Christians, Armenians and Syrians in Antioch that they, they took a very active role in, in hunting down the garrison that, that I imagine they felt had been oppressing them for the last decade. The fact that Bohemond contacted Farouz and ultimately arranged to have himself installed as Antioch's new overlord might seem shady. In a crusading army made up of lots of different contingents, It wasn't out of character for leaders to put their own agendas above those of the wider force. In such a challenging situation as this, how significant were individual personalities in dictating the course of the Crusade? The Crusaders have, effectively, it's a kind of a group discussion leadership, you know, so there are a lot of very aggressive and very independent-minded leaders and commanders of the Crusader army. In a way, calling it an army is almost a misnomer because it's effectively a series of small armies and contingents working together. So you could they're almost like trade union conveners rather than dictators. And you find that sometimes the leaders go off and do their own things. So, you know, one guy might go off and take 
Odessa, another might take a route into different parts of Armenia, and so on. And they have their own internal logic for doing that, but they're not always playing out in, in the sense of a grand strategy. Ironically, often the First Crusade was lucky, and these different leadership tensions actually worked out well, because a lot of the countryside was Christian, having different groups going off, uh, you know, sort of engendered support amongst different parts of the local Christian communities. And you could find in, in sieges that these tensions accidentally worked very well. So I, I, on one level, it looks like they're splitting their forces. In reality, on the ground, it meant that they divided the defenders. But how much of it was strategy and how much was accident? Um, you know, a bit of both, I guess. It wasn't just the personal wants and desires that altered the Crusaders' fates. As Natasha Hodgson, Associate Professor of Medieval History at Nottingham Trent University explained, societal expectations of leaders in the Middle Ages also had a role to play. I think when you look at leadership, especially in the medieval period, it's always bound up in ideas of masculinity, even sometimes if you have female leaders. Because there's expectations on leadership that this has to be a person that you're willing to follow. It's not as easy as just kind of sticking a crown on your head and waving a sword and saying, follow me. Uh, you know, it's a process of negotiation and you have to be, you have to be able to win respect of your peers in order for people to, to listen to you and to, and to follow your ideas. And there's, there's a variety of different ways of winning that respect, whether it's to do with patronage and wealth and giving people money and saying, you know, I, I can support you, uh, whether it's to do with, you know, actually showing how good you are as a strategist on the battlefield, if you've got somebody else's back, if you're trustworthy. So I think these are all things that, that are bound up in the idea of, of masculine leadership on crusade. And so those people who are found wanting, like the people who run away from the siege of Antioch, their reputations are, are blighted forever. And it's, it's peer pressure, essentially, uh, that keeps everything together because they don't have a, a clear sort of set of laws at this stage. This is what you do on crusade. or, or And there isn't a clear leader. So they have to abide by whatever social rules they all agree on. And acting as you are expected to is really, really important. We can't say that they all got along famously all the time. Uh, there are clearly severe divisions. But I think that enough of them were able to continue with common cause. And I think there was a lot of pressure, actually, not just from uh, disputes with the leadership, but also disputes with people in the army who wanted to fulfil their pilgrimage goal and go to Jerusalem. And, and that was the final driving force that pushed them to, to go on. Having broken into the city, the Crusaders were safe, at least for a little while, from the approaching Turkic army of Kaboga. But any relief they may have felt dissipated fast. Trapped inside the city with their enemy also lurking inside the citadel, they had little chance of salvation and morale soon hit rock bottom. That was until a miracle occurred. Natasha explained to me how the discovery of a religious relic shifted the mood. Clearly the discovery of the Holy Lance is a significant event. This, the idea that this guy, Peter Bartholomew, he has a series of visions. He goes to Count Raymond and Adamar of Lepuy to convince them that he has had a vision which tells him where to find the Holy Lance. Now, this is the spear that supposedly pierced Christ's side during the crucifixion. 
they believe him sufficiently enough to send a team of people, some quite important people actually, to try and dig this thing up in the church, including Peter himself. And they dig for a considerable amount of time and then at a very auspicious time in the day, he jumps down into the hole. Oh, look, I found it. <laughs> Whether they they were genuinely moved to believe Peter's account, whether they thought this might actually be good for boosting morale is, is a bit unclear. What we can say, though, is that clearly the news spreads very quickly across the army. However, it takes at least another two weeks before they decide to fight at the Battle of Antioch. So it's not like an immediate, oh, we found it, here we go. They're still kind of taking time to consider what, what they're going to do. So in that respect, I think, although the lance is important for morale and the chroniclers want to write about it a lot, we also need to remember that really not everybody believes in it straight away and it doesn't necessarily immediately result in the Battle of Antioch where the Crusaders defeat Kerboga's forces. So it, its role may have been overemphasised a bit. So what was so significant about this object? It's a relic and people are obsessed with relics in medieval society. And that kind of idea of having physical contact with something that's divine in some way, we can't underestimate the importance of that. And of course, the Holy Land itself was kind of a relic. It was a place where the events of the Bible played out, where Jesus walked, where, you know, where, where the Virgin Mary ascended to heaven. And all of these places, people had heard about them all their lives. And that kind of religiosity is also a big draw for people who want to go on pilgrimage. People want to have that actual kind of contact and physical relationship with the spiritual. But that said, they're not completely uncritical of it either. Whether people believed this was the real holy lance or not, the relic, and of course Peter Bartholomew's influential visions, clearly held a power over the Christian crusaders. What interests me about the visions, I think, is how apocalyptic and radical they actually are. He starts saying things like, well, you know, if you're not prepared to, uh, to, to go on to Jerusalem, then you're not a true crusader and we should put you to death. And, uh, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I admit, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it very simply here, but people who are not willing to go along with his plan are trying to betray the army and are therefore worse than Judas. Clearly, he believed that he did have this, this divine authority. And ultimately, you know, this leads to him being a real problem and they have to sort of trick him almost into uh, putting himself forward for an ordeal by fire, which kills him, to get rid of him. You know, and, and I'm pretty sure that, that that's, that's what they want because he was too problematic and was causing, you know, was causing too much conflict in the army. Think about the way that modern influencers work this incredible self-belief that people seem to have and their ability to persuade others that of their absolutely perfect life or whatever else. I do, you know, I, I kind of, I do kind of wonder about this as being something that is unique to a particular type of persuasive leadership. When the Crusaders then marched out to face the Turkish forces of Kaboga, not only were they impassioned with a new religious fervour, they also had something else going for them. The soldiers who had survived everything to get down to Antioch were the best soldiers and the best equipped. And more to the point, 
These were people who now knew how to face a Turkic army. They weren't the novices. They weren't just blundering around trying to learn as they went along. So the army that sallied out to face Kavoga was in trouble, but they were a veteran army. And they actually, I believe, had the confidence to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do even a few months earlier. Now, you might be wondering, during this incredibly brutal time for the Crusaders, where was that support that the Byzantine emperor Alexius I Komnenos had promised them way back in Constantinople? Let's check in with our resident expert, Jonathan Harris, Professor of the History of Byzantium at Royal Holloway, University of London, to hear what aid Alexius actually provided. What's Alexius doing all this time? Is he sitting in Constantinople twiddling his thumbs? Well, no, he isn't. Because what he does is he uh, gets part of his army, puts it under the um, command of one of his relatives, and he sends it out from Constantinople. Where does it go? Does it go to help the Crusaders? No, it goes south. It goes down towards the port of Smyrna on the Aegean, because Smyrna lies um, close to the Meander Valley, which is the agriculturally most productive part of Asia Minor. This is what Alexius wants back. He's not that interested in Jerusalem, but he does want the Meander Valley. And this army enters the area and there's virtually no resistance because the stuffing has been knocked out of the Turks by their defeat at Doriléon. So it's really um, just one triumphal march, town after town, falls to the Byzantine army. Most of Western Asia Minor is restored to Byzantine rule. This brings us to the spring of 1098, by which time the Crusaders had been besieging Antioch for months. The commander of the Byzantine force who was with them had left. Antioch had not surrendered, and reports of this dire situation had reached Constantinople. We're now in June of 1098, and Alexius sets out from Constantinople at last to follow on in the footsteps of the First Crusade. And this time, he does head east. He doesn't hurry, one gets the impression, but he goes along and he reaches a, a place called Philomelion, and he stops and um, sets up his camp for the night, And during the evening, three ragged figures burst into the Byzantine camp. They are deserters from Antioch. And they demand to see the emperor. They're taken before Alexius. And they say, look, emperor, don't even think about going any further. Because what has happened is, yes, we took Antioch, which was great. And we entered the city. But then a huge Turkish relieving force turned up. So now we're besieged in Antioch. The citadel is still in Turkish hands. So we're between a rock and a hard place. By the time you get there, the Crusaders will be dead. All you'll be able to do is bury the corpses. And the chances are that large Turkish army will still be there. Now you look at it from Alexis's point of view. His aim is to reconquer Asia Minor. So yes, he could, you know, do the gung-ho thing head east, go to the rescue of the Crusaders. He might be too late. So he says, right, folks, here's the order. First light tomorrow, pack up, we're going home. Um, He turns his army round and he marches back to Constantinople. It's the sensible thing to do because by any rational calculation, the Crusaders cannot possibly have won. They are hopelessly outnumbered. They're weak from hunger. They're going to lose. Nobody could possibly have known that actually they're going to win. 
because on the 28th of June of 1098, they decide in Antioch to counterattack and they charge straight at the Turkish army. And I think the Turks are just so astonished that they all run away. And the Crusaders win. So they find themselves in possession of Antioch. No Alexius, no thanks to Alexius. They've won. Considering their ordeal, what did the Crusaders make of this? Well, I think to start with, of course, the Crusaders didn't know how close he'd been as he'd turned his army around. Remember, of course, in the Middle Ages, nobody knows what's going on beyond the next hill. There's no long distance communication, nothing, apart from a person on a horse riding with a message. That's all you know. So you really don't know what's going on. But in due course, they do find out. And then an envoy arrives from Alexius saying, oh, yes, I I seem to remember that we had this agreement in Constantinople, didn't we, where you're going to give back all the towns that formerly belonged to me. So could you just hand over the keys to Antioch, please? And the Crusaders then say, well, we don't seem to remember that you were actually there because you also said in that agreement that you would help and supply us. Well, you gave us a token force. The leader of that pushed off. You never turned up. Um, No. You can't have Antioch unless you do turn up with your army. If you turn up with your army to help us capture Jerusalem, then you can have it. But that's rendered null and void because um, Bohemond seizes the city for himself anyway and makes himself the first prince of Antioch. So that's that. So, so yes, it did leave a bit of a, a, a sour taste. And you can see from the Crusaders' point of view, why should we give it to him? He really hasn't done anything for us. And these fractures continue to deepen long after the end of the First Crusade. Remember that religious schism we spoke about way back in episode one? Well, the capture of Antioch brought these divisions to the fore. Well, part of the the legacy of the First Crusade, as far as the Byzantines are concerned, is that the First Crusade makes the schism between the churches, which was previously a theoretical one, into a reality. Because when the Crusaders take Antioch and don't give it back, to the Byzantine emperor. They acquire large numbers of Orthodox Christian subjects, along with quite a few Muslims and and Jews. Um, And effectively, what arrangements are the Crusaders going to make for the church in Antioch? Because Antioch had a person in charge. It was a patriarch. His name was John, John the Oxite. And John had had a very rough time because during that long siege of Antioch, the Turkish garrison had used him to try and ward the crusaders off. What they'd done is they put him in a cage and, and they dangled the cage from the walls with the poor old patriarch in it in the hope that it would make the crusaders go away. It didn't. And then they bung him back in prison again. And that's where he still is when the crusaders burst in in June 1098, having captured the city. And they let him out and pat him on the back and say, it's all right now, son, we're here. Um, You can go back to being patriarch again. And so he is. But then Bowman seizes the city. And he looks at this John the Oxide and says, hang on a minute, that guy was appointed by Alexius. He could be a fifth column. I don't want him hanging around. So he basically sacks him. And he replaces him with a French Catholic. So John the Oxite, what does he do? He goes back to Constantinople and tells his sorry tale to the Emperor Alexius. And the Emperor says, well, actually, you're not sacked at all. You're still Patriarch of Antioch. The one that's there, that French man, he's an interloper. He's not a real Patriarch of Antioch. But this is what happens all over the Crusader state. So what happens now is that you have two separate hierarchies. And so there's an Orthodox Patriarch of Antioch and a Catholic one. And so now it's sharpened the division. You know whether you're Orthodox 
or whether you're Catholic. Because um, if you're Orthodox, you look to the patriarch who's living in exile in Constantinople. And if you're Catholic, you look to the one who is actually in Antioch. So it has made a reality of the schism. And now people are aware of the schism. They start linking it up with that political problem that the Byzantines are seen as not supporting the Crusades. So it's not just they're not real Christians because they don't support the Crusades. They're not real Christians because they don't accept the authority of the Pope. And they don't accept the Western version of the creed and all these other differences. So this is gradually opening up this division between the Byzantines and the West. With a significant Crusader stronghold secured, the Crusaders now looked on to their final goal, the holy city of Jerusalem. Their actions evidently had far-reaching and widespread consequences. Consequences that would cement their legacy in the years to come. More on that next time. Many thanks to my experts for today's episode. Professor Jonathan Phillips, Dr Steve Tibble, Dr Natasha Hodgson and Professor Jonathan Harris. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson.